This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi-Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. Yeah, we have a fun sportycast. You're in Colorado. Your power went out because the weather is not great where you are. So you, of course, being the MacGyver intrepid guy that you are, now we're running this off your phone. They can't slow me down here. 80 degrees here on Sunday, Scott. Uh, 35 degrees here today as we record on Monday. So quite a it's difference a between the weekend and the weekday. Perfect Eben Novi Williams kind of thing. Like one day you can be out whitewater rafting and then cool when you can go run 110 miles for fun. Perfect. You will hear no, no complaints from me. So why don't we start with the NFL draft? Because you get the highs, the lows. I thought I'd try a little transition there from the, from the good weather, the bad. <laughs> uh, 12.5 million viewers for the first round of the NFL draft led the way on ESPN, almost six and a half million ABC four plus NFL net, almost two. Were you among the 12 and a half million people that took part of their lives to watch somebody call other people's names? Uh, So I, I watched a very small portion. I watched the Jaguars take uh, Trevor Lawrence so I am, by the Once way... Once again, Evan Dovey Williams is a Jaguars fan. He's not Jaguars, he's a Jaguars fan. The way those things get calculated, I am a very small portion of one of those 12 million people. Um, but yes, I, I tuned in for a little bit of it. Uh, I've never been a huge fan of of the TV property that is the NFL draft. Um, but this year was a good reminder that it is a pretty significant uh, driver for the league. There are There are a ton of NFL fans out there who want to tune in. They want to see not only who who their own teams draft, but also college players who they've been following for a while. There's always intrigue. We got that Aaron Rodgers, Packers, 49ers, rumor mill buzzing around right before the the first round started on Thursday. There's always a little bit of intrigue. Best thing that could have happened to the NFL. Agreed. Agreed. I think the NFL has kind of always... Best thing that could have happened. Yeah. They've always done a good job of kind of creating cliffhangery rumor, you know, a doubt unknown heading into the draft. And I think that the numbers here show it. It, it beat the Oscars this year, Scott, and the Oscars had a kind of an all-time bad year. But you're never going to complain about that if you're the NFL. It just didn't beat them. It walloped them more than two million higher than than the Oscars. And I myself am not a draft watcher. I myself am not a, an Oscars watcher, but my wife is. 
So I, I believe it took her all of 30 minutes on Oscars night uh, as I passed by to say something to the effect of, this is terrible. This is boring. This is awful. So, of course, uh, in my little scroll of social media, I saw that she was not alone. Many people seemed to be down on the Oscars presentation. So for whatever that's worth. Uh, but the NFL, yeah, as you said, and we're going to find out right now if a friend of ours, Jay Bieberman, uh, actually listens to the podcast because Jay and I used to love, because you know, Eben, I lived on 6th Avenue in Manhattan and not far from Radio City Music Hall, which is sometimes where the draft would take place. So watching the, the kind of person who comes and goes to the draft, I would say 99% of those people were wearing the uniform top the jersey, the hat. And I would say a good 64.9% of that, of that group were wearing Zubaz pants. I don't know if you remember the Zubaz pants. Of course, pants. of course. Bill's so fans, J.B. Yeah. and I used to, yeah, we used to love, you know, being right there. When you saw 6th Avenue inundated with NFL jerseys and Zubaz pants, you could set your calendar because you knew it was NFL draft time. But again, a reminder, just how popular the NFL is, just how popular anything that is tangential to NFL games are, because a lot of people knew who you know, the top couple of picks were. There, there really wasn't suspense. And frankly, and I say this every year, would it be that hard to just let the draft happen and then kind of check your phone a half an hour later and say, oh, look who we got. You know, whatever you're rooting for, whatever team you're rooting for. Oh, we got the guard from. Oh, good. We got the linebacker we were after. Good enough. <laughs> But no, many hours of one's life spent watching. So kudos to the NFL for once again drawing 12 plus million people to that event. And to that point uh, about the, the fans that show up, this year's draft was in Cleveland. I don't know what the final tally is, but they were expecting around 50,000 people to show up. I know within the offices at the NFL, there is excitement about the, the in-person aspect of this draft, the amount of people that showed up in downtown Cleveland. I think that gets them kind of excited for what I would expect to be an NFL season this fall that has relatively close to full normal capacity on the heels of COVID-19. So so not only a big TV audience, but a big in-person presence uh, in Cleveland, which obviously the, the, the league did not have for its draft last year, but I'm sure that was an encouraging sign for people around the NFL as well. I was very happy to see the NFL, by the way, find a way to incorporate at least some furniture from Roger Goodell's basement, which is how the prior year's draft was held. They brought the leather chair from his basement, uh, fans from the team that was picking. One fan got, got to go and sit in the chair while their team was picking. Again, kudos to the NFL for at least recognizing the previous year, how it was handled, and taking a little bit of fun and having a little bit of fun, and in some way, finding a way to incorporate that. Just adds a nice touch uh, to the proceedings when you when you have things like that. I laugh that uh, our Anthony Krupe, who certainly has a way of turning phrases, he talked about some of the viral moment, moments from the previous year's draft, and of course, Bill Belichick's dog was one of them, and Cliff Kingsbury's house. You know, that that became a meme, 
And I love that he called it, quote, weirdo plutocratic backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I think totally that's what people creepy. want. Weirdo right? plutocrat backyard of Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's transition, Scott, from a, from a sports telecast to the pandemic that is getting good reviews to, uh, to, to one that is the opposite. And, and speaking of Anthony Krupe, a story that he wrote at, at Sportico last week, the Texas Rangers and their RSN, which is Bally Sports Southwest, have apparently changed the angle that you get when you watch baseball, the, the traditional angle that's kind of over the pitcher's shoulder where you see the mound and, and the batter. They have zoomed that out. The motivation there appears to be they can get more sponsors into the into the, the standard broadcast uh, by showing them on, on the wall behind the batter. Uh, but it has made a lot of the viewers upset that the, it's harder to follow the pitches, it's harder to see what a ball and a strike is, et cetera. They've essentially sacrificed the 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 viewing experience for fans to get more sponsors into the uh, into the telecast. A part of me, Scott, thinks that this is kind of the inevitable nature of you know where priorities are. We've seen fans in stands get upset because TV cameras are blocking them. The the booger mobile for Monday night football seems like a perfect example of that. And now we have fans that are watching on their couch, uh, getting upset that, you know, sponsors are getting uh, a a wider view that is hurting their enjoyment. What, what do you make of this story? I make of the headline and I, I'm not sure we need to go any further because Krupe put a great headline on this quote, Small ball, RSN cash grab makes baseball even harder to watch. And that's a problem because when you're in the business of broadcasting sports, making things frictionless and easy to watch is probably a better way to go. And this is the kind of thing I'm like, well, is Krupe being hypersensitive here? That's what I was wondering. Uh, And I'm very glad that the art that we used to accompany the story was sort of the regular view, what you're used to, and the new view. Because I'm telling you, Novi Williams, that if I was watching the telecast and I didn't know any of this, I am going to say that I absolutely would have noticed that the batter is smaller, the pitcher is smaller. I wouldn't have noticed that there was an extra ad, but I would have noticed that my ability to see the strike zone and so just what I'm comfortable with and used to, something's amiss. It's off. Why does that guy, why does the batter look like he's off in the distance somewhere by the horizon? I think it's a terrible idea. And it's the only, by the way, the only network in that group that did it. The other Bally's branded RSNs have not made the change. So um, I understand why, like, you know, he he did point out that the Rangers averaged like 48,000 viewers for games last year. That's the sixth lowest among the RSNs. So they need to make some cash, right? I, I, I totally get it. But to do it at the expense of the enjoyment, and that's the right word here, the enjoyment of the viewer experience, to me, is a mistake. I, I just don't think that's the way you want to go. And if you want to look on a more macro scale for numbers, uh, Krupe dug this out in a different story. According to a recent filing with the SEC, Sinclair, which owns these, these networks, of course, uh, in 2021, they're on the hook for $1.82 billion in rights fees. So ad space is not, you know, that ad world is not coming back the way they want, even though you're getting sort of that push for NBA and NHL playoffs and the new baseball season. So I get the fact that they need to find ways to generate revenue. Just don't think this is a good way to do it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the kind of what the pandemic Respond the, the the pandemic revenue needs when 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 people are not getting ticket revenue when, when other revenue streams are getting. 
squeezed kind of what they've done in the past year that is going to stick around and what won't. A good example of something that won't stick around, the tarps we've seen over seats that have extra advertising on them. As soon as sports teams can sell those seats in mass, uh, those tarps are going to be gone. Uh, one that will maybe stick around a lot of the new jersey advertising. MLS has sold an extra patch on its jerseys. The NHL, their ads on the helmets now. Hockey helmets. Th- those feel fairly benign. I don't think they're really interfering with the way that people watch the game. What makes this one so interesting is that it is extra ad space that is essentially by virtue of offering it and having to show it is making the game a lot harder to watch for a lot of fans. And and that's where I find this one to be especially interesting. Um, And my guess would be if there's enough outcry about it, if enough people turn their TVs off, we might see this angle change. And the opposite, you know, if this is something that a lot of people complain about, but the same amount of people end up watching the game, uh, I imagine there's less impetus here for Bally to decide, oh, we're going to go back to to the original thing, if this is indeed a more lucrative camera angle for them in some ways. So if they did have about 48,000 viewers average, like if we put out that Twitter poll, like is, what do we got? Are we going to get like 48,000 responses? Yay, nay, hate it, no. I think a better chance. How about you just put up a GoFundMe? <laughs> just say, <laughs> we need the money and, and we don't want to make the broadcast experience worse for the folks who do t- tune in. Please send your money to, and then you get like a Rangers Bally's tote bag, just like, like public like television. Like hold the camera people. angle hostage, essentially? <laughs> yes, 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 a- absolutely. We'll put it back if we get enough money from this GoFundMe page or something, because that's what they need. They need cash. They're t- I, don't, I don't mind the try. I get it. And I, I don't know what the response has been among Rangers viewers. I can just tell you that if I was tuning in, I would, one, notice that there's a change. Two, uh, run for the drawer to put on my old man glasses because I can no longer see the strike zone. And three, dial up or email that network and say, this is a terrible change. I do not like this. Can you please go back to the way it was? One area uh, in the sports world where fans have made their opinions known, Scott, shifting gears here to go down to New Zealand. Uh, An interesting mix of private equity and sports story here. So Silver Lake, uh, the private equity firm, US-based, has $80 billion under management. They cut a deal with the New Zealand uh, rugby, which owns the All Blacks, the popular national rugby team, uh, to invest $280 million into 12.5% of the All Blacks commercial rights. These are deals we're seeing all over the sports world. We've talked about them on the podcast, private equity as sports teams need money and private equity is looking for ways to invest to to, to make money in the future. There's been a marriage there among sports and private equity. One thing that's different here is that there's been a big backlash in New Zealand about the possibility of this deal. Last week, the New Zealand rugby board approved it. It is still awaiting approval from the players, many of whom have been outspoken in the past few weeks that they don't want this deal to go through. Some of their concerns, cultural appropriation, they're concerned about the profit motives of uh, a U.S. private equity firm that might not be in line with uh, the way that they think about the growth of the game in New Zealand and, and for their beloved national team. Scott, I can't help but think about this story in the context of the Super League. Uh, when there was a big outcry in, in European soccer among fans and players about foreign money and, and the way that, that that foreign team owners were thinking about trying to maximize revenue. Am I correct in thinking that there, there may be a little mini backlash in sports right now for private equity ownership as people you know get increasingly worried about what it might mean for things like media deals and, and touring, et cetera? Yes. However, uh, I would guess that 
those investing entities, by virtue of what they probably or should have learned from the Super League, will go about their business a bit more deftly, with, with, with a, an easy touch, if you will, <laughs> even if their intent is to go and raid. You know, it, you could have a whole bunch of Gordon Gecko guys uh, and, and women looking to make these investments, but you just have to tread lightly. Um, by the way, I've been the NBA, as we know, uh, changed its rules to allow for private equity ownership. Of course. We broke the story that Arctos was buying a 5% stake of the Golden State Warriors at a $5.5 billion valuation. I, you may not even know this because uh, the story hasn't hit the system yet. Mm-hmm. And I hope I don't speak out of turn here because Break, I, now I have to go news. and edit it out if this doesn't happen. <laughs> However, I am being told that the National Basketball Association owners have approved that transaction, which would make it what we believe to be the first private equity deal in, in the NBA. Others are trying. So you are absolutely right. You have other firms. CVC is trying to buy a piece of the San Antonio Spurs, Bain Capital trying to buy pieces of sports teams in, in Europe. Uh, this seems like a great time to bring up the quote that you got out of our good friend, Rick Burton, mm. out of my alma mater, Syracuse University, because he coined, he did coin a new term. I haven't checked the US Patent and Trademark Office, but he should trademark this because it is, it is perfect for what's going on. We know about the globalization of sport. Now, that is you know basketball without borders, other sports without borders, looking beyond customers all over the world. What Rick says, we're seeing this phenomena of the, this ownership from private equity taking it around the world, is globalization. The question is, and here we go, and you know I love it, The Simpsons. This is what we've talked about. Mom and Pop Hardware, a division of Global Dynamics, but I'm going to say Global Dominance, Inc. That is what these leagues are really tippy-toeing. His line was great. The questions that will be asked, who owns the All Blacks? We know the answer to that. New Zealand Rugby owns the All Blacks. But the more perplexing question, the troublesome question, the next step question is, okay, but who owns New Zealand rugby? Will they honor our traditions? Will they treat it like that, that really local, passionate base like we do? That's the intimate question that needs to be asked here. And that's what everybody will be asking, rightfully, in the wake of the Super League. Because, boy, I don't understand how the owners of those teams did not understand. I mean, talk about miscalculation. Did not understand... The, the inherent ties, the emotional bond, the identity, the character, all of it between the teams in the EPL and the towns where they play. It's just a total, total misplay, a total misunderstanding of the bond between the fans and their team. So now you're starting to have others ask the question of, okay, who owns the All Blacks? Great. New Zealand rugby. We know that. But if you take this investment, who owns New Zealand rugby? And people want answers before they say, okay. Yeah, and I think the, the, the beauty of that, that term, globalization, is that those two things are so essentially at odds with each other. We can pick any sports team here, but let's use the All Blacks as the example. As they become a bigger and bigger commercial entity outside of New Zealand, a larger and larger... New Zealand has, what, four or five million people in it? A larger and larger percent of the overall All Blacks fans 
become fans that aren't in New Zealand. And a lot of those fans honestly don't care as much about the community aspect of it, what they're doing on the island, et cetera. Uh, so as the All Blacks become a bigger and bigger global entity, the people who operate and own them need to think about the All Blacks and their fans around the world. But they also need to think about that local aspect. And, and to use this example even further, let's say that Silver Lake essentially does this investment. They have a little bit more say in what the All Blacks are doing. Financially, it may make more sense for the All Blacks to be on tour 250 days a year to play as much as they can in places like Europe or Africa and Asia where a lot more fans can see them play. That may be the more lucrative option. That's not a good result if you're a New Zealand-based All Blacks fan. Uh, so exactly, this is the this is the problem. It's where the Super League went wrong because it tilted way too far towards globalization and not enough towards the local part. Um, but yes, everybody needs to start thinking about these ideas because in a lot of ways they are at odds with one another. And it's only going to become bigger and bigger, kind of this disparity between the global and the local. So New Zealand is not alone here, but I will be very curious to see what the players do. Yeah, could you see if there was like a situation where some... Uh uh, outside investor comes in and says, wait a minute, what is that dance they're doing? What is that Hakka thing? We're wasting too much time. We can, we can sell a sponsorship during that time. They don't need to do that dance. Let's get rid of it. I mean, that, that's the core of what we're talking about. Yeah, that yeah, or the sponsorship, right? The it's time yeah. for the Hakka presented yeah. by Rocket Mortgage, and people are going to be upset by, uh, by, by that as well. Yes, uh, if you had the Haka presented by Rocket Mortgage, sorry, Dan Gilbert, but I think people would be upset by that. And as upset. another as another interesting example here, Scott, F1, which was owned for 10 years by CVC, um, during that time under a, a foreign private equity firm, there were a lot of changes to the F1 calendar that a lot of fans got upset with, including the fact that they added a lot more races. A lot of those races were outside of the sports know, heritage and, and, and tradition back in, in, in Europe. They went to Azerbaijan, they went to South Korea, places where I'm sure the races were, were lucrative in some ways, but not great for fans. And also CVC, when it thought about its F1 media rights negotiations, also took often took the, the most amount of money and maybe not the, the free-to-air TV deal that a lot of fans wanted. So that's another example of kind of what happens when the financial motives of an organization that a lot of people have a lot of affinity for kind of run into what the motives are for people who are local that they care a lot about the sport itself. All right. Well, after my Hawkeye example, and maybe my Twitter poll this week will be, did we need another example? It was a good one. I just don't know if yeah, we needed I don't know if we needed another example. Maybe that'll be the Twitter poll, but okay. Um, I love the joint byline with you, Evan. You know that. I love the Moby Williams Sashnik byline. Uh, and one of them was Intel selling its sports unit. Tell the folks what that means. Yeah, so Intel started its sports group back in 2016. It kind of had two trajectories at that point. One was VR, which it has since de-emphasized. The other one is this idea, I'll use the technical term and then I'll explain it, volumetric video. It is a platform by which the company, and it's called TrueView, it's, that's the Intel platform, uh, they can create 360-degree replays of sporting events. They put 20 to 30 cameras around a venue. They get the, they, they capture a play from every single angle. And then using AI and putting those feeds together, they can then take a replay and say, okay, what was Scott Soshnick, the quarterback? What did he see on that play? And then go, okay, Evan Novi Williams was the safety on that play. What did he see? They can essentially create replays from any angle on the field. 
obviously, Scott, this is a, a really interesting technology. It has a ton of applications from teams and referees to digital collectibles and social media. Um, Intel is looking to sell that unit. There are other companies out there that are trying to do similar things. I think the question will be, as this technology gains more and more applications, as media changes to a point where everyone wants personalized options, is Intel going to be the leader in this space? And if they will, I would imagine this is going to be a pretty valuable property. Yeah. Intel hired uh, PJT to sell this property. You think maybe some tech companies, media platforms, or you know, plenty of SPACs still out there seeking targets. Um, not sure how much this is worth. Not sure anybody does until the bidders come in and actually throw a number out there. Um, but what one of the things that you got in that article was sort of this outside voice tech expert saying, what, what we have now isn't really the valuable part. It's probably not going to be a big part. It's more about what may come down the line, right? Exactly. I think that's that's exactly right. I think the the product as it exists right now, fans may recognize that they've used it during the Super Bowl before. I don't think it's as fast as Intel wants it to be. It's not as though 10 seconds after a play happens, you can immediately get this thing from all the different angles. Uh, in a world where that exists and it's available to be put on social media or to be played around with by consumers in a, in a live fashion, I think that's an extremely valuable property. So you're right. It's not, I don't think the, the, the full value lies in this exact product as it is right now. It's unclear if in 10 years, the idea of putting 30 cameras around a stadium is going to be the smart way to do this or a totally archaic way uh, of, of using hardware for something that there's, there's better technology applications for. So yes, I think the, 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 the idea is certainly there. The question is, is Intel, is, is the infrastructure in place right now at Intel the fastest way to get there? And that's the thing that people need to decide if they want to buy this. I like this idea for sure. It has a lot of applications. Yeah. Can Intel get there first? The way it was described to me is imagine that Odell Beckham Jr. national TV catch, that mm. one-handed thing. And imagine by halftime that that one-for-one one NFT was for sale. Like that, that was like one way it was looked at. So very interesting. All right, Evan, I just want to also bring up uh, Thursday and Friday, great event, uh, Sportico Live, the live arm of Sportico, women in sports event. Check out this lineup and I'm not even doing everybody. I'm just going to rattle off some names here. Chelsea Clinton, Danny Garcia, part owner of the XFL, Dee Haslam, Cleveland Browns, obviously, Amy Brooks, head of innovation, uh, Teambo at the NBA, Marie Donahue, Amazon, Laura Froelich, Twitter, on and on and on. A great lineup talking about women in sports. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Uh, for Core Development, I will say the show can be found at Sportacast, which is for now, just a short time longer, The Hub. <laughs> no, we will forever be, but soon we'll have more shows on the Sportico Podcast Network.